So I'm going to introduce uh, my good friend Sybil Darable at the uh, University of Illinois, uh, Chicago, who, uh, I don't know, Sybil, do you call yourself a civil engineer? You, you, you have degrees in civil engineering. Do you think of yourself as a civil engineer? No, I call myself an urban engineer because when I tell people what I do, people who don't know what I do, they say, oh, so you're in urban planning. I say, well, no, no, urban planners look at people. I really look at infrastructure. So I might as well be an urban engineer. Yep, uh, I like that urban urban engineering. You're you're creating uh, your own sort of transdisciplinary uh, you know field in how you describe yourself, which I think is is uh, is nice. So uh, thanks, Sybil, for joining us. And um, as per yesterday, I'll ask the attendees as you know we talk about something that you might find interesting. Please put it into the Q and A. You can always use the chat to chat amongst yourselves, but use the Q&A feature to pass along questions to myself and Sybil. And when we get to the uh, top of the hour here, I will uh, pass along uh, some of those questions uh, to Sybil as we get there. We can sort of talk about those. So um, thanks again, Sybil. So uh, always nice to connect with you and, um, you know, delighted to be having this conversation. And, you know, I think the place to start is, you know, the story of um, Invisible City. So we've titled this discussion um, or you know you've you've titled discussion visible cities some extent infrastructure visible cities right so where does that come from and mm -hmm. I'll sort of give the the overview but then we can sort of dig into that and, and kind of what resonated with you so a few years ago Sybil uh, uh, visited me in uh, Phoenix here stayed at my house and uh, over the you know two or three nights that you were staying with me we I sort of went through some of the books that I had on cities and infrastructure and so on. And one of the books was uh, um, Italo Calvino, I'm going to not pronounce it correctly, but the Italian author, Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities book, which is from the 70s, if I recall, early 70s. Yeah. Written. And this story is, I don't think I'm giving anything away here, right? But um, the, the sort of summary of the book is there's um, Marco Polo, the famous explorer who is traveling around the world and intermittently reporting back to uh, Kublai Khan, a Mongolian emperor, I think it is, whose empire is expanding rapidly. And Marco Polo is sort of reporting back to him and, and sort of talking about the various cities around the world that he's experienced. But what's particularly interesting about the book, I mean, there's something like 50 cities that, uh, you know, each is like a chapter or something like that. But each of the, you know, there's a couple of really, I think, interesting dimensions to this, right? So the first is um, one that the, uh, uh, the 50 cities are sort of described through um, sort of a common set of like humanistic lenses, right? Whether it's like memory or, you know, uh, you know, something artistic or, you know, stylistic or architectural, right? There's, there's these sort of humanistic qualities with which the cities are described and often contrasted, or at least you as the reader have to contrast them. Um, and the second is uh, that um, Marco Polo is, is sort of making the point that it's difficult to describe cities um, agnostic to his own experience, right? So like the sort of uh, Italian world that he comes from and basically saying, look, you know, I always view cities through this lens of who I am, which is sort of defined by the place where I come from and sort of what I'm familiar with, right? So this sort of uh, subjectivity to how things are described, which I think is interesting. So I think this book 
uh, resonated with you, right? I think you, you liked it and... Well, well, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it, right? My, my approach to creativity, to art, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I thought it hit the, uh, I, I really thought it hit the, uh, the idea on the nail, which is for me, one of the biggest things is um, we tend to focus on infrastructure as if it was a living thing, as if that infrastructure has to be maintained no matter what. Um, it has to be intact, it has to stay there. And he was talking about cities and they're very, very short chapters, like one paragraph, one page, two pages. It's very easy to read. You can read a little story, a little chapter, you know, every day. And he really focuses on the people and how the people interact with your infrastructure. So I, I really thought that it centered cities around people, right? Instead of the infrastructure, which is something that we often do as engineers. So I loved it. And then I, I started to think that's really what we should be doing, you know, as engineers, taking a little break from our papers uh, or as academics, from our papers, from our studies, try to just imagine, think about the cities, think about well, whatever it is that we want to think about, but um, really without being limited, without limiting ourselves, without trying to conform to a certain style or to a sort of format and just write about it. So that, that, that book really resonated with me. And after that came the idea, right, of our, of our book. The uh, urban infra infrastructure reflections for 2100. So exactly. that that was the spirit of that book, right? I think it sort of came from that. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, absolutely. It's one of my favorite books, by the way. Now, uh, for if you've never heard of the Invisible Cities and you want to have a quick look, it's on my website for free. I got the PDF; it's there for free, so anyone awesome. can just download it. Or or it's a nice one, you know. If you're stuck somewhere and you just pull your phone and you don't want to read, you know, a full book. You can just you know get the PDF, read a couple of you know uh, of stories, or you know just one story. It's 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 perfect for that. Yep, and this is also a book that if you are doing like a PhD in English, right, you might get assigned to sort of contrast the style, the different ways in which the you know that find the patterns and how the cities are described, things like that. And and that's uh, I think that's initially how I came across it. I had a friend who was doing a PhD in English, and uh, I saw the book and I said, wait, cities. You're, you're an English major. You shouldn't be reading about cities. And I grabbed the copy and, and uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, in the, in the uh, Italo Calvino is actually a very, very famous writer. Uh, he wasn't even invited to give uh, a series of lectures in Harvard at some point. And he wrote everything he was going to talk about. And there were all uh, points to learn how to write. Um, and, and he actually passed away before he could go. But his wife had all the writing. And so she actually published it. And that's called uh, Six Memos for the Next Millennium. And so you can learn about his view about clarity and lightness and speed and so how to write in general. So he is a great writer. They're a very famous writer. So I'm not surprised that uh, they're talking about his book in, in English, even though it's about cities. Yeah. Uh, I did not know that. That's really neat. I got to look that up. So Sybil, when I, and now having uh, uh, known you for a while, um, I now have this sort of, um, uh, piece of information in my head, right? Like I often use it as sort of a fun talking point of, um, how, you know, how close is France to the United States, right? So if you were to ask people across the world, right, educated, uneducated, whatever, right, this question, right, what would the answer be? And I think more often than not, you think about, uh, you know, Paris to, I don't know, New York or Paris to the cent center of the US. So can you answer that question for us? Absolutely. Um, so France, um, France is much, much, much closer. I don't know in terms of miles, um, but um, where I'm from is a place called Saint-Pierre and Miquelon. They're tiny, tiny islands, uh, not too far from Maine and Nova Scotia and Canada. Uh, it's about 10 miles from Canada and it is part of France. So I'll tell you, it, it's 
France was one of those big empires that had a lot of colonies. You know, fortunately, they're all uh, all became independent. But you still have the islands everywhere, and those islands really can't. It's it's harder for them to survive on their own. And so I'm from one of those. It's a tiny, tiny one, tiny archipelago of 40 square kilometers. There's a few islands, but picture you know eight kilometers by six. I should try to do miles now. Four, four by four miles by six. Very very small. Um, off the coast of Canada and the U.S., people who speak French were 6,000 people. We speak French, only French. If you're there, if you go there, you only speak English. You might have a hard time uh, getting around. Um, we have the French TV, French produce, the cheese, the charcuterie, uh, everything you can dream of. The French school system, uh, the French president, the French passport. We have the euro, and all that is very, very, very close to the U.S. and Canada. Um, so that's, I think, how close you can go. Um, that's how far France is from the U.S. It's actually very, very close. And the, the funny thing was that it, it could have maybe even been uh, American. During the Second World War, the um, Germans were sending uh, U-boats in the North Atlantic, and the Americans were afraid that they might try to go to Saint-Pierre as a French territory. It's normally part of occupied France. Tried to go there to then try to go and invent, invade uh, Canada and Europe. So the Americans were about to invade, I think, Saint-Pierre, but then there was free France came in with their fleet and they freed Saint-Pierre. Um, there was a referendum whether they wanted to be part of free France or not. So really, you know, not being with occupied France at all. The referendum was overwhelmingly yes. Uh, and then Saint-Pierre is one of the first part of free France. And that's why it's still French and not, not American. I, I don't know if the Americans would have invaded and given back to France or not. But, you know, there's a, yeah, that's where I'm from. So, uh, you know, I was, as I was putting together the kind of questions and, and sort of talking points uh, for you, you know, I was thinking about this and, and, and sort of saying to myself, this must have had a huge impact on like how you perceive, you know, built environments, you know, colonization, development, right? All of these things, uh, you know, I imagine you've thought about that. Is that the case? I mean, absolutely. Uh... I mean, it's a tiny island, 6,000 people. I stayed there until I was 18. I did travel a little bit, but I didn't live anywhere before I was 18. So, of course, it, it completely impacted me uh, in several ways, you know. Um, the first one really related to what I'm doing now, uh, looking at cities and infrastructure and, and all looking at multiple infrastructure systems, is on the island, I knew exactly, you know, when I was a kid, I knew exactly where the water reservoir was, where we get water. Um, it's actually, it's a really nice height to go there. I knew exactly where the power plant was and how electricity was generated. I knew exactly where solid waste uh, was being sent. I knew exactly about the sewers. It's just there and it's around us. You know, it's not like here. So I'm in Chicago. Well, I know water comes from uh, Lake Michigan. I don't know where my power comes from. I'm sure there are power plants, many, and I'm sure it comes from, again, everywhere. It's a big grid. But I don't really know where it is. Uh, I don't know where my solid waste uh, goes. I know it gets picked up. It goes to a, a center, a, a, you know, where they're going to then send it to a landfill. But I have no idea where it goes. But where you're from an island, all of that is very clear to you just because you, you walk you know, around, you see it. And that's, that's where I'm from. So, so that impacted me. And that, I think, really from the beginning, um, at least when I started to do research, really told me that I had to look at everything. It really made sense to look at everything and not only one infrastructure system, but, but all of them. I think that's the first one. The second one, which is, I think, a very, very big deal as well is, and that has nothing to do with, with research, is the fact that I was, uh, St. Pierre is not a very diverse place. Uh, it's not a very cultural place. There's no great museum, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I grew up really not knowing 
that much when you're when you're a child it's amazing you can just go about everywhere you have friends you're just outside all the time there's no danger no crime nothing uh, as a teenager i was a little bit understimulated because there wasn't that much to do uh, but i was there and then when i left when i was 18 now uh, then i that's when i learned about other cultures etc so i went to friends in england uh, canada the us but because i think i spent the first 18 years um just on this small island i'm extremely naive about the world um extremely extremely naive i'm extremely uh, curious to learn about more and more cultures um and i'm extremely curious also about research so i don't really go and tell myself well oh, this is going to be a tough research question i don't want to tackle it it's just like oh it sounds like fun let's go into it and i think that being naive is really really helping me i mean i'm sure i've been burnt quite a few times because i'm way too naive but at the end of the day i think i'm not cynical i don't think i'm too bitter and i and a lot of people in my field are very cynical and very bitter. And I think part of it is really just because of that place where I'm from. And I'm just, again, very, just very, very naive uh, generally. And that, that helps me as well in my research, you know, and in thinking about the future is that freedom from, freedom from concern, you know, freedom from, can I really do it? I don't know. I'm just going to go for it. It sounds fun. You, you are the opposite of cynical, uh, you know, yeah. like cast a vote. Yeah, like you're at the other end of the spectrum, whatever that word is. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the world is so much fun, right? I mean, I, I learned a lot of it after I left and I'm still learning all the time. It's so much fun. It's so great to discover it. It's just amazing. Yeah, you know, these these origin stories, right, that we have, um, you know, I think particularly as engineers are, are ones that we, so few engineers, I think, embrace. Um, and, and I... Uh, I hear it with you. I, I've thought about it a lot myself, and I often tell the story of um, growing up in Connecticut, you know, which is you know the older area of the United States, so to speak, one of the older areas of the United States, where surrounding me was uh, were buildings from the early 1600s, right? So I grew up in a town that uh, was founded in the early 1630s, you know, one of the first towns in the United States. And it was not uncommon to see buildings from that era, 1600s, 1700s. I had friends that uh, lived in houses from the 1700s, you know, the, they just, oh. their parents just happened to buy it, right? And that's a normal thing to do, like you, know, you might experience in England or, you know, somewhere else. Um, but then I moved out to, uh, out to the West, to California and then to Arizona. And old in the West is, you know, very different, right? It's like, you know, good, good luck finding something from the 1800s out here, you know, in Phoenix, things are oldest from the 1950s. And, uh, you know, I think that that, uh, those sort of origin stories uh, have a profound impact on how we sort of, sort of perceive the world, right? How we understand infrastructure, what it should do and so on. And too often, we don't explore that history, you know, whether it's kind of interpersonally or, uh, you know, in a group or as a community of, you know, urban engineers or infrastructure people, yep. sustainability people are resilient, right? Too often we start at, okay, here we are today, let's go forward. And, you know, let's think about what we need to do going forward. And that's certainly necessary, right? But we, you know, I think that there's this really important dimension of understanding history. Um, and I don't just mean like, in what year did this happen? You know, I mean, kind of, what, what is the context by which we inherit what we have, um, you know, that, that the world around us is the way it is, you know, whether that's the physical infrastructure, the rules that govern that infrastructure, so on and so forth. And I think that that's just such a big missing piece. And I hear you get into that, you know, I, I, I often hear you, uh, or at least have an eye for it, right? So, um, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but the flyer for uh, the workshop had um, uh, uh, Tokyo in the background, and, and that was a 
a nod to you because I remember your story of going to Tokyo and looking for the oldest bridge. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, no. You know, I mean, I, this is this is something that's actually very, very dear to me as well. Um, the history and and realizing that it was different before. I often tend to tell people the Department of the U.S. Department of Transportation was created in the 1960s. And now you would not, you know, for most people, you would not even be able to imagine what a world without the USDOT would be uh, if you're in transportation. But it's, it's like 60 years old. Um, and we, we, I think we're, we're locking ourselves in, in a certain pattern. Uh, when I hear people saying, oh, we just love the car. We're going to have the car forever. It's just going to be like this. Like, no, it wasn't like that years ago. Why does it have to be like that for forever? Uh, you just get locked in a mentality that it's the way it's supposed to be because it's always been like this and it's not true. And I'm not saying that um, changing is, 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 is easy, but I'm saying we're going to change no matter what. So trying to break away from really what we have now, really try to be creative and really focus on the needs that we have to try to change things is something we should do. At least, at least a mental exercise, at least a conceptual exercise, uh, because it wasn't like it is, you know, before it wasn't like it is now. And we can change and we will change. Uh, you know, one of my, uh, I love that quote from Patrick Geddes, a uh, British guy. And he says, a city is not a place in space. It's a drama in time. I like that a lot. You know, it's not a, when you think about a city, when you think about Tokyo, you think about, you know, I have an image that comes to my mind, but it's not a, you know, place in space. It's a drama in time. So, uh, when I think of you, I think of, um, a, a, a lot of things, but, you know, in particular, kind of history comes to mind, like your appreciation for history, your appreciation for art um, and, and color and, you know, the, the, you know, many different dimensions of, of the world and cities and, you know, people and their interactions with infrastructure, things like that. I was thinking about complexity. Um, you know, I think you, you are a complexity scientist when it comes to infrastructure. I think, uh, you know, you are, and, and, maybe you would characterize yourself differently, but when I think of you, I think of somebody um, who thinks about the dynamics of cities, right? So like, if I were to look at your work, I think it's it, superficially, it's, it's easy to say, okay, yeah, you do like network analysis, but it's so much more than that. I think it's, it's so deeper than that, right? I think you are fundamentally trying to unpack the complexity, the dynamics, right? The, the sort of relationships, interdependencies, the feedbacks, right? all of these things that are at play, um, would you say that's a fair characterization of what you're trying to do? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The fundamental forces that sort of govern us as, as, as human beings who are inherently flawed. Um, so trying to capture, yeah, how we consume water, how we consume electricity. Um, is there feedback? You know, how land use impacts uh, the way that we behave? Uh, you know, absolutely. All that is characterizes me very, very well. And so where does, uh, you know, again, kind of art, I want to go back to that. So like, you know, I know you have an eye for art and, and I think you often think about cities, you know, from an artistic viewpoint, where, where does that come from? Talk, give me a little bit of context there. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about complexity after. Art is, as an engineer, as most engineers, I think I, I despised art for a very long time. Um, I mean, I'm sure many people are going to disagree with me, but uh, the more I talk to engineers, the more I see people who just really don't, don't like art too much. And I, I, I was the same. Uh, and then in November 2005, I met a very, very sweet woman, woman who became my wife, uh, who is in art history. And so she dragged me to museums. And I think it took about four years. I still went. I didn't really did not enjoy it. 
But after four years, I started to like it. And the reason why I started to like art a lot is because she taught me about art. She taught me about the different periods. She taught me about the contribution of the different periods when things evolved. And before that, somehow you get that impression that you have to look at a piece and feel something. And I didn't feel much, especially when you have a monochrome, it's, you know, painting with just one color. You really don't feel anything. Maybe some people do, I, I didn't. And so by learning the different periods, by learning about art, by learning about the contributions, um, now I started to really appreciate it for, for what it was. And I thought, and I found that it really inspired me in my work in several ways. The first thing is by putting me in a new space mentally, you know, by just, it was just, I was exposed to something different instead of always thinking about myself, I was exposed to something different. I went to see a nice exhibit. Somehow I like to say I was a part of my brain that didn't work too much before was just fired up. And so when I was coming back to my normal problems, that, that part of the brain was still being fired, you know, I was still fired up and I was still more creative. Um, so that's really there. Um, and I really think it helped me. And, and I still go to museums now all the time and it really, really helps me. Um, that's great. The other thing is sometimes I even felt very inspired by art. Um, there's, so I have, I, I like quotes a lot, um, but I was at some point I was uh, in Texas with my wife who were visiting uh, the, the state and we went to a museum in Fort Worth and there was an exhibit by Frank Stilla. No idea what, who Frank Stilla was. Um, we just went in, it was a great exhibit and I really, really enjoyed it. And then I see this quote on the wall and I, and I got it and I'll just read it to you. I, I have it right here. Uh, so Frank Stilla is an American artist, by the way, started as a minimalist. So he had just canvases with stripes. They are very nice, but then he completely changed and he's got this quote, which is the essence of freedom is something that is able to overcome, overcome its own boundaries. The question is not only to be able to define things, but also to have them, uh, to have the boundaries be felt in the proper way. They're defining, but not limiting. And so I was thinking about that. So you really, you have those arts and then his art really emerged from the canvas and they become almost like sculptures, but they're not their paintings. And what he's saying is that the boundaries of the canvas, they're there, but you have to feel them in the proper way that they're defining, they're defining what the canvas is, but they're not limiting defining but not limiting. And I thought that resonated directly with me with my work on infrastructure um, because I speak with transportation people and they only care about transportation, they don't care about water. And I think they impose those, they, you know, they have those boundaries and they define them and they limit them as well. They don't want to go outside. It's like, oh, that limits what I'm going to do. Uh, and I don't think it has to be that way. Like transportation is not water, transportation is not electricity, transportation is transportation. There are boundaries that define what transportation is, but we don't have to limit ourselves to that. Uh, and I think that's you know, the same mentality is applied to a lot of agencies, uh, a lot of authorities, a lot of utilities. Uh, if you're a water treatment facility, you only care really about water treatment, then you send it you know, distribution and you don't worry about it too much. Uh, but when, when you treat water, do you have electricity? So you try to have backup staff control over everything because you're really trying to define and limit yourself uh, to your boundaries, to your system. But again, those boundaries, they are defining, they are there, they exist. You know, it's not all of a network with no boundaries. I mean, you know, there are boundaries, but they're not limiting. And so very, very often I've had that. Another time that I had a revelation, I remember that was in like 2007, I was in New York at the MoMA. And I see a piece there by uh, Marcel Duchamp and it's called Network of Stoppages. And one of the things that he did was to take uh, pieces of, of string one meter long and just let them fall on the floor. And then they just took some shape and he said, well, now this is the new meter. And I, you know, you can think it's stupid, but I thought if you asked me to define your new meter, I would say, well, it's not gonna be this, it's gonna be this. 
but it's always going to be a straight line. I just never thought, well, you just let it. And now the new meter is kind of like going around. I just thought it was incredibly creative, you know, not smart or not smart. It's not just, I just it never occurred to me. I never even thought that it was possible. So art really tries to get me in that place where I, I again, remove the boundaries, really try to be free, really try to think about the future uh, of infrastructure or infrastructure in general. So that really, really, really helps me. Um, and that's with, you know, mostly with uh, material art. So paintings and um, yeah, a lot of paintings, sometimes conceptual art, but then you also have literature that I like a lot. And literature, it's exactly like Invisible Cities, which is really making you think first at, of, of the people and then of the infrastructure. And I really think in, in, in engineering, a lot of times we do the opposite. We think of the infrastructure, that's the way it's supposed to work, and people are gonna have to adapt to it, as opposed to thinking about the services that infrastructure provides. Anyway, so art has, has brought really, really a lot to me, if only the way that, just to make me think in a different way. And I yeah. really find that stimulating and inspiring. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, I, I can see that playing out in, in your work. Yeah. Uh, you, you remind me, Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide has a quote. I think it's like, you know, uh, we demand rigidly, uh, rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty, you know, something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I often think about the blurring of these boundaries as complexity grows, right? So like, as we study urban systems, like, you know, what is a power system? Well, is a power system easily defined nowadays or is it becoming, you know, a hybrid of, you know, water and transportation, right? Is, is Tesla a transportation company or are they an energy company? Well, yeah, kind of a little bit of both, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that, uh, that creativity, you know, wh whatever the, the sort of, um, uh, the motivating factor is whether you know it's art or, or something else. I think that creativity is particularly important as we approach this this complexity, right? Because I think that the kind of rigid ways in which we have been trained to approach infrastructure over the past century are increasingly problematic for you know the fuzziness of the future. Yep. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um... And I really think this is key. And again, it's not to say that we should stop defining systems. Electricity is not only electricity, it's water, it's everything. It's like, no, 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 you can say, you know, of course there's the, the power grid itself or some power plants, but it's about, like you were saying fuzziness, right? It's about having those, those boundaries, but you just look beyond them. You don't limit yourself to them. Yep. Um, and I really think this is, this is key to what we're gonna have to do in the future. Um, you know, the reality was that infrastructure was just way simpler a hundred years ago. Uh, you did have those boundaries. Usually you could just limit yourself to those boundaries. And I think what happened in the 20th century is that as system grew and as, as they became even more vulnerable, we, we had to add in a lot of things. So instead of just having pumps and uh, burning gas, we started to use electricity because it was preferable, forgetting that now we're reliant on the power grid. Uh, as we had very large systems in the 1970s and 80s, we started to have SCADA systems, those um, so sensors in the system to monitor what's going on in real time. Now, this, this is adding a dependency now between telecom and you know, any utility, let's say water, that wasn't there before. So the infrastructure that was there 100 years ago, somehow all those dependencies kind of creeped in, um, and now they're there, and now they're limiting factors. And so we just can't look at infrastructure the same way that we did 100 years ago um we just we just cannot do that even though some part of the infrastructure is actually you know still the same water pipes that are 100 years old is still there but we just really have to 
look at infrastructure in a different way and we have to operate it in a different way as well. So now does it make sense to have a department of water management a department of transportation that are really you know, separate and that don't really talk to one another? I, I, don't, I don't think so. Does it mean that we want to merge everything into just one big one? I don't think so either, but somehow there's got to be more communication because the infrastructure, even though it started to be very you know, distinct, now they are merged. Uh, they are more fuzzy, like you're saying, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, Sam Arvisman in his book Overcomplicated, which is really a book about technology and complexity, you know, talks about this force that he describes as accretion, right? The kind of layering of technologies on top of technologies on top of technologies. And I think that's what you're describing, right? So a hundred years ago, you know, you had the first layer of technology that went down, right? It was like the brand new system. We had never had that power technology right before. And all of a sudden it's brand new. It's relatively simple. And over decades, you, you know, you swap things out, you layer things on top, right? All of a sudden, uh, you know, a piece of hardware is relying on another piece of hardware. And that wasn't the case in the first iteration of the infrastructure, right? And, yeah. you know, fast forward a hundred years, and you've got these systems, again, that we inherit, right? And you've got people and institutions that haven't internalized or recorded that knowledge, right? To some extent, right? It's sort of like, well, when something breaks, we'll kind of have to reverse engineer and figure out what's going on. You know, the, I think the New York City subway is a great example. I like to show the video, like, you know, how you see the, you know, 2021 technology interacting with like 1920 technology in the system. Okay. And, you know, when something breaks from 1920, they like literally, uh, New York City MTA has like the, uh, uh, the expertise to, you know, save the component, rehabilitate that 1920 because they can't just upgrade the entire, you know, technology at once, right? Yep. They have to do it uh, one line at a time or one grant or, you know, whatever at a time. So, yeah, I think this, this accretion um, force is one that we, uh, we often underappreciate and don't talk enough about when we're talking about infrastructure. Exactly, but we're still trying to manage it the way we did in the, maybe you know, in the 1970s or 80s. Um, and the best that we're doing now uh, which which really is bothering me is, you know, especially with smart cities, is we're just trying to put more sensors. So we're just monitoring how well it's working or not working, but we're not really changing the way that we're doing things. Um, I, I have a fundamental problem with the word efficiency. And in the business world, it's always about being more efficient. Um, when I, whenever I hear a pitch for some IT, whatever it is, they're always trying to say we're at efficiency gains. We're gonna, you know, we have to optimize to be more efficient. And this is, I think, the opposite of what we want now because being more efficient by definition is doing what we're doing now, but better. And that's not what we want. We wanna do things differently because we have a very different system now than we did before. Uh, so fundamentally, I have a problem with the word efficient. So whenever my students use the word efficient, I'm always asking, like, what do you mean by this? <laughs> what do you mean by efficiency? So I, I prefer the term effective. Uh, but it's, again, it's really just driving um, the fact that efficient means doing the same thing, but better. So I like to give the example, and I'm not fundamentally against efficiency at the beginning. I like to say, oh, you know, roads, we had roads at the beginning, and then cars were running on them, and they were okay. But once we had a traffic signal, uh, the traffic signals really helped. So traffic signals helped uh, have the use of roads to be more efficient. And that's fine, and we want that. But now if when you go to LA and they have one of the most advanced, sophisticated traffic signal system in the world with, uh, you know, I don't know how many roads, 
The problem is not efficiency. The problem is not better utilizing the roads. The problem is really fundamentally changing the way that you do transportation. Uh, and I think that's where we are now. So it's, it's really a shift. So whenever you hear efficiency, I hope I'm my, you know, you're going you're to hear my voice in the back of your head saying, is that really what we need, you know, higher efficiency, or do we want to do things for just differently? Yep. Uh, I, I think the LA example is a great example, right? Uh, so, so if you talk to an urban planner, they like to point out that uh, Los Angeles, like many other places in, in the world, but Los Angeles, you know, it's pretty, pretty clear, uh, has a transportation system that fails twice a day. Yep. Right? And you, you would not accept that outcome for pretty much any other infrastructure, right? You wouldn't allow the power system to fail twice a day, not in the developed world, or the water system to fail twice a day, right? Um, and, well, and I think you're right. Like, you know, you, you look at a place like LA and it's gotten to the point where, uh, like many other places, right? Where they realize that um, in many ways, another dollar into uh, the existing paradigm that is transportation mobility um, as roadways is not going to provide much, if anything at all, right? It actually may, may make things worse off, right? You might be in a situation where you're, you're actually, uh, you know, past some tipping point and adding congestion. Absolutely, you know, and for all the, let's talk, you know, let's talk about Elon Musk, just two seconds. Um, for the genius that he is and all the electric cars, that idea of, of tunnels, that's, that's a stupid idea, right? I think that shows you that someone can be brilliant and stupid at the same time. And someone who's, who's very, very smart doesn't have to be smart in absolutely everything. Because that idea of the, the boring company is it's a terrible idea. It's only going to make congestion worse. Um, and, and yeah, so no new tunnels. I hope that's not happening. I know some cities somehow were fighting to have the technology being implemented in their city first, just for advertising. It's like, no, don't do that. It's, gonna, it's a terrible, terrible idea. Um, and that's also partly why I'm not a fan of, um, it's not that I'm not a fan of autonomous vehicles. It's that many people have this idea in mind that autonomous vehicles are going to solve everything. And they're not. They're really, really not because you're just going to put more demand on the roads. Um, and it's, it's, I don't see congestion disappearing. We've had congestion forever, first as pedestrians and then with, with carts and horses in big cities. And I don't see it disappearing all of a sudden because we have autonomous vehicles. So I know you think about smart cities, smart technologies a lot, right? So you've mentioned uh, already kind of sensors, you've mentioned autonomous vehicles. What do you think is the role of technology in our cities of helping them, helping us deal with complexity? Like, is it, is it simply a force that's adding complexity? Is it a force that helps us manage complexity, whatever the heck that means? Is it something else? How do you think about that? Well, I mean, so we can talk about two things there. We can talk about the complexity as well a little bit. Um, Please. At least I, I can give you one, I mean, Oh, we can talk about complexity in general and then uh, one more concept and then go to smart cities. The, the simple answer to your question for me is not all technology is good. Some are, some are desirable, others are not. Uh, somehow now we're trying to brand that any technology is good. Any, you know, all those big IT companies are trying to really, you know, the Google, the Facebook, the IBM, the Microsoft, they're really trying to make you think that, oh, if we put technology, we're going to be more efficient, it's going to be better. I, I don't think that's true. So technology has a, has a very important place, um, but not, it's not a blanket solution to everything. Um, that's really where we have to think about where the technology helps you do things different or whether it helps you just make things more efficient. I think we're really getting there. When you go to complexity, um, I mean, we can talk about what I think about complexity after, but what I can say now is 
there's a fundamental diagram that I always think about. It's the one thing that I think about nearly every day. It's the one reason why, since I saw it, I keep thinking about it again and again and again, and it really motivates my work every single day. And it's the concept of uh, diminishing marginal returns by Joseph Tainter, uh, who wrote a book in the 1980s, I think it's 1988, called The Collapse of, the Collapse of Complex Societies. And what he identified by looking at older societies was, I'll just do it in a graph way uh, because it helps me. So I have my, my, my two axes, X and Y. And then he's saying that whenever a society is establishing somewhere, whenever it's growing, uh, it has to add complexity. So for example, it has to add infrastructure or it has to build institutions. And it always has to do that just because it's growing, so it has to be managed. And when you're starting and you're adding complexity, let's say you're just settling down somewhere and you need access to water, you're generally gonna do the thing that's best first. So let's say there's a lake nearby, you're gonna use the water from the lake. Uh, there's a river nearby, you're gonna try to use water from the lake. And so you're gonna add complexity to your system. You're gonna add infrastructure. You might create a water management department, whatever it is. And then you're gonna have a lot of benefits from this uh, complexity that you've just added. And then the place is gonna grow again and again and again. And at some point you're gonna be stuck. You're gonna to have to come up with more solutions. Um, so now water from the river might not be enough. We might have to go in the ground. And you're gonna to have to again, add more complexity, more infrastructure, more institutions. Um, and because it's the second time around, if you use the same kind of mentality, you know, when you, when you go through that, that process, you're also gonna benefit from this new complexity, but not as much as you did before. And then the third time around is gonna be again, you no. Know, so what, whatever we're saying, the, the new complexity, those are the marginal returns. And those marginal returns are decreasing, 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 decreasing. And if you don't change the way you do things, at some point you collapse. And it's happened many times in the past. Um, one of the best examples are the Roman Empire and the Maya civilization that really just collapsed because they just couldn't think of, a, of another way to do whatever they were doing. They were just trying to add the complexity, but it was the same kind of complexity, so it didn't work. Um, the, the, so what well, you have to do is something different. And so a, a good example for that is the Industrial Revolution, finding fossil fuels, burning all the fossil fuels that really was packed with energy that really made things different. I mean, that really enabled us to have water pumps, um, that really enabled us to have you know, gas systems and then electricity. And we really added a lot of complexity, but it's different complexity, right? I mean, even the example of New York City was supposed to crawl in horse manure in the early 1900s because all the horse carriages would be there, except that that didn't happen that you know, it was not adding complexity from horse carriages, we had cars and those cars changed completely everything. So when you see at that graph, you see it kind of like a little mound, you know, it, it's kind of, it's, it's just going up very fast and then it's a little bit slower. And I think that's where we are now as well. And that's where technology has to be careful. If we're gonna keep doing the same thing, then we're just gonna go toward collapse. If we really do things differently, if we invent a new kind of complexity, Right? It's, it's not about removing the complexity. Maybe it's about making things that we're doing now a bit simpler, but it's really about thinking a different kind of complexity. And that's going to make us go and be able to get more benefits from any complexity that we're adding. But it has to be different. It just cannot be the same one. You know, um, my, uh, our, our colleague, uh, Sam Markov, who's talked about exploitive versus uh, explorative behaviors. And um, exploitive is sort of associated, I'm, I'm oversimplifying with um, efficiency and explorative is, is sort of like resilience, right? It's sort of this, you know, doing things differently as you're saying. And I, and I like that framing around smart cities. I think too often we're 
thinking about smart cities as, I mean, I think the term is vacuous, like, like many of these other terms that we use, but um, often I think smart cities is synonymous with technology, which I think smart could be many things. It's not cyber, right? Yeah. But um, I often think we are losing perspective in uh, the sort of goals of smart cities. So I'd like the way that you lay that out there. Yeah. So exactly. So I actually like the term smart city because I think it speaks to a lot of people. You know, it's kind of like this, the term circular economy. Economists hate it because for them it doesn't mean anything or... But you know, people get an appreciation for it. If you say circular economy, some concept come in your head. If I say smart city, some concept they're gonna come in your head. Um, but if it's smart city, if it's putting sensors on infrastructure that's already limited, try to do what we're doing now a bit better, that's not helping. So that's where, again, you're, you're just the technology. It's not about efficiency gains, it's about doing things in a different way. And that's gonna be different solutions for, for everything. But just putting sensors to do the same things is not is not going to work. So if we you know if we continue down this path, right? So if we're talking about censoring up everything with with infrastructure, right? And by the way, what's I, I never know what to call it. What, like, what's the opposite of a of smart infrastructure? Is it dumb infrastructure? I, I think that term is not generally okay, right? So or, or not acceptable in like academic literature. So I call it like legacy infrastructure. I don't know if you have a better word for it. So I, you know, I tend to think a legacy is not smart. Um, you know, not digitally connected or something like that. And then there's yep. smart. But, you know, if we were to sort of um, fast forward, um, so, you know, it, it seems like, and I think I, I'd be confident in saying the data uh, suggests this, that we're like on this exponential trajectory of like integrating sensors and, you know, uh, cyber hardware into legacy infrastructure. We're probably producing unreal volumes, you know, exponential increases in volumes of data about our infrastructure every year, every month or something like that. I, I think I'd, I'd be fairly confident in, in saying something like that. Um, but, you know, this, this sort of opens up, right, a new world of, you know, I don't want to call it services, but a new way of understanding, maybe, you know, there's, there's data streams, and a lot of that data is just going to be nonsense or noise or, you know, not useful, but some of it, you know, a very, very, very tiny fraction of it might be useful. And of course, this sort of opens up the door for, you know, you, you and I have talked about like, Cognition, right? Like how we understand what's going on in our infrastructure, our cities with the changing complexity that is those systems. Um, and even something like artificial intelligence, right? You know, our ability to deploy software to do things that humans in the past uh, would have to do. I know you've thought about these things and I know you're actually doing machine learning work and you're, you know, you're doing some of this stuff. Um, what's your perspective on like artificial intelligence or, or kind of big data and infrastructure? I mean, that's a good question. That's, I mean, that's a very good question. It's, it's, not, a, it's not an easy question to answer. Um, I, I was thinking about it at some point, uh, especially with respect to technology, where on one end of the spectrum, you have the techno saviors who think that technology is going to solve everything. And then on the other side, you have the techno skeptics who think that technology is, is really not going to do anything. And I see myself not halfway. I see myself closer to the techno skeptics. Um, it's not that I don't believe in the power of technology. It's that I, I don't necessarily trust how humans use it. Um, so I, I'm all for big data. I'm all for, uh, yeah, I'm all for technologies. It's really just how it's being applied. Uh, I know personally, I do use a lot of machine learning. Part of the reason why I use machine learning a lot is because it really got me to think in a different way. Um, even simply the concept of classification versus regression 
so just to make it simple, regression is we're trying to predict the continuous variable. So let's say I'm going to try to predict traffic in the future in terms of you know miles driven, for example. That's a regression problem. A classification problem is when we're trying to predict the class. So a very good example is in transportation, if it's trying to predict your mode as someone going to drive, ride transit, walk, bike. And so um, in, in engineering, now I think it's a little bit different. But when I went to school, I had no idea that classification existed. I really only thought about regression. And so machine learning really helped me completely reframe, fundamentally think about um, the problems that I was trying to tackle. So I really like that as well. Again, from the conceptual perspective, I really, really liked uh, technology. I also really like the math where you can see curves in your head. You can see, I mean, there's that those kernels that are happening. So radial basis functions. Uh, fundamentally, you know, conceptually, you can think about them, and I think it helps you think about the problem that you're doing uh, in a very, very cool way. Um, I'm a big fan of. I like modeling, but all models are wrong. Um, I've I've often heard from people who hate modeling. And they say, well, models are, are wrong. They don't help you. We should not do much modeling. And I disagree with that because I think modeling is, if you understand your model, it's, it's one voice. It's one idea. It's one thing. So it's worth it. Trusting the model is probably not a good idea. But generally, the process of modeling, and even, again, from the research point, point of view, the concept, seeing the math, seeing the, what's going on in your system, understanding the limits, that really helps you understand your system in a better way. Um, so again, so I like machine learning for from a conceptual point of view, just because it helps me again to be more creative, to think in a different way, to look at my infrastructure in a different way, because now I can model in a different way. I like modeling because it gives us some ideas of where we're going, um, but I don't trust those, those models necessarily um, all the way. And I'm also very skeptical of, you know, we're going to talk about Facebook because it's, it's out there right now, of those artificial intelligence where they have those models and they don't really understand what they're doing. All they know is that somehow it's going to be maximizing their 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 revenue, um, so they they're just oh, it's going to maximize the number of clicks that people are going to have, but they don't really care about the contents that's being shown. That's wrong, right? What you want is really people with the what we call the domain knowledge. So you really want the people who know about infrastructure to understand, to do some machine learning, to understand the limits, and to see what it can do and what it cannot do. Um, and hopefully, with that in mind, you know the problems that you're going to trying to change. And, you know, you know, so. On, one, on the one end, you're trying to not keep the same infrastructure, you want to do it differently. And on the other hand, you use technology to, to do that. Um, so I don't know if I made a lot of sense there, but I like technology a lot, but I'm way more the techno, uh, techno skeptics uh, end, just because I think there's way too much faith right now in technology from people who don't know how it works. No, you make a lot of sense. Um, I, I feel like there's a third dimension um, you know, not just the saviors to the skeptics, but there's also like, you know, does technology uh, take on a life of its own, right? Do we oh, sort yeah. of release technology and say, go do something in ways to, to your point, you know, Facebook or, you know, Google Maps, right? We, we often talk about Google Maps, like routing us in ways that have these unbelievable impacts on, you know, the energy profile of the world, right? Um, congestion, right? Uh, accessibility and, and livability in cities, right? Think, things like that. It, once Google uh, decides, you know, some programmer in Silicon Valley to make a tiny little tweak to the uh, routing algorithm, there's profound changes, right, across the world. And, you know, I wonder whether there's this third access, uh, access of, um, intelligence and um, 
kind of automated intelligence that we are about to release, whether you know it's intentional or not, and the implications that that's going to have. And I think that we as you know, civil engineers or, or related are vastly unprepared uh, for that future, right? For, for that reality, uh, you know, how, how to deal with that situation, how we navigate it, you know, whether or not the tools of today, you know, forget the last century, the tools of today are appropriate, right? For a world where we're interacting with software as a new form of intelligence, right? Those sorts of things. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing I like to say is um, for, for people who think technology is going to solve everything, like I said, our society has never been as technologi technologically advanced. We've never been as sophisticated. And yet, you know, we're consuming energy. Well, it's way too much energy. We're, we're, we're generating way too many greenhouse gases. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, technology has its limits, uh, definitely. And oh, to your point, by the way, about acceleration, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's hard with those S-curves. You always start with an exponential growth, and at some point, it starts to to stop. So I don't know. I don't know where we are with technology. Are we just gonna? Is it just gonna get faster and faster, um, or are we gonna stagnate? Are we gonna rethink, reshape the way that we do things thanks to technology? I'm not too sure. Part of me also wonders if I'm just not too old. I'm I'm from the past century, and can I really be creative enough to think about how technology should be used properly? Or is it going to be the, the challenge of someone, you know, someone like a researcher or an engineer who was born right now and, and who's going to become an engineer in the next few years, who grew up with that technology and who's going to change it to make it work in our favor? Yeah. Or, you know, there's a, there's a nice show on Netflix, because there's a Love, Death, Robots or something like that. It's a bunch of sci-fi shorts, 10-minute sci-fi shorts. And there's one episode where um, this couple finds a civilization in their freezer and they're like literally in the ice age. And, uh, you know, they watch over the course of days as the civilization advances, advances right through the modern era, accelerating, accelerating, accelerating towards, you know, and I thought, you know, there's a nice blend of kind of art and, and infrastructure, right? Towards like this singularity, right? Like all of a sudden they, be, they become this ball of energy and then, you know, evaporate into the ether around them, you know, something like that. Maybe that's where we're going. Um, let me ask you one more question before we uh, kick it over to uh, the audience. Um, uh, in regards to sustainability and resilience, so one of the things that, that I think about a lot, and I'm, I'm guessing that you probably have some thoughts on this, is, you know, what are the right questions that, or, you know, what are the questions, the next questions, maybe that's a more appropriate way of framing it, that we should be asking, right? So, you know, you've made the point, you know, we're, we're often approaching the problems of today or the problems of the future with the, the tools from the past and those might not be appropriate. But, you know, if we're looking forward and you were to say, you know, you're talking to your students or the next generation of, of folks in this field, um, what do you think is, uh, you know, what's, what's the next big thing that, you know, they should be looking at? Like if, if you think about sustainability and resilience, you know, are we asking the right questions? Are we answering those questions fast enough? Is there, you know, something different uh, that we should be pivoting towards? What, what do you think? That's a tough one. Um, I, I, it's one of my biggest gaps, you know, something you know, like no, yeah, you know, it's, it happens so many times where, what would we say, what, what would we say? Hell is paved with good intentions. Um, so many times we see some energy reduction thanks to something or a new practice or something, and it turns out it's actually not working too well. Um, 
so what's what's the future of sustainability? I, you know what? I'm not too sure in, in resilience. I think we've become pretty good at diagnosing the problems now. I think we finally know what the problems are. For the longest time, we thought it was maybe gaps in technology. Now we see that even the way that we live, our lifestyles, our culture uh, has fundamental problems. There's another quote that I like a lot from um, Ivan Illich. And uh, it's uh, a book called The Towards the History of Needs. And he's got this about technology and he says, there are two roads from where we are to, to technological maturity. One is the road of liberation from affluence. The other is the road of liberation from dependence. Um, so, you know, the car is a good example where, all right, the car became cheaper and cheaper if one could afford one. So it's freedom now, you know, everyone can own one, but if everyone has to own one, then land use is changing and then we depend on them. So that's liberation from affluence, but we're very much dependent on them as opposed to liberation from dependence and we don't depend on them. And in the US, we always say that having a car is amazing because it gives you the freedom to do whatever you want. I define freedom in the US, the ability to have a normal life without a car. That's real freedom because you don't depend on that machine that, that's just right there. Uh, Charlie Chaplin's not been, you know, has a great quote also in the great dictator that I like, which is machinery that gives us abundance has left us in want. Um, so where we're going in sustainability, I think is, so right now what we're doing is de decarbonization. We're at least trying to limit the number of greenhouse gases from going to the atmosphere, which I think is a good first step. But ultimately, it's going to be about changing the way that we live, our lifestyles, the way that we consume things. Uh, ultimately, I think that's where we're going to have to go. Um, it's just, we're just consuming too much. It's just, it's just really too much. So knowing what to look at is not easy. Do I think that if we come up with a CO2 scrubber from the atmosphere, Right, that's when we have those now carbon capture things. So we're trying to have a machine that we just put around cities and it's somehow scrubbing the CO2 so that the air is cleaner. Do I think that's the solution? Absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. Because we're just doing the same thing. I mean, maybe it's delaying us in the right direction because we're doing the same thing, but just not as bad. Um, so fundamentally, I think rethinking how we live um, is, is, is what we want. How do we and that's where we're going to go back to complexity. How do we look at fundamentally human beings as they are with all their flaws, but how we want to be social, how we're social animal, but we're also territorial animals. Um, so let's look at those fundamentals of how we are. And let's try to build a world around that does not rely on the overconsumption of, um, of, 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 of energy to try to provide all these things, at least for sustainability and for resilience. I mean, I read your book, terrific book, by the way, that you published with Brad Allenby. And at the end of the day, I think is it's 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 really about being comfortable with uh, failing, with with letting things fail, and, and trying to have a society that doesn't depend so much on on a lot of things and being okay if we fail every once in a while because there's just no way out. Um, we're never going to build a purely robust, and I'm going to say robust, not resilient. Right, uh, because resilience is what we aim, and, and failing is part of resilience. But we're never going to build a, a totally fail-safe anyway uh, society. You know, I, I spoke with uh, Chuck Redman yesterday, who's an anthropologist by background, turned into a, you know an urban sustainability person, and um, uh, the story that I told was very much related to that point in, in introducing him. Right, so you know he. Um, you know, I think as an anthropologist, uh, you know, somebody who studies the history of humans, right, there is this uh, normality that 
failure of civilizations happens, right? Because you're, you're necessarily studying, you know, civilizations that no longer exist, right? That's, a, that's yep. pretty much all that you do, right? But as, you know, particularly civil engineers, and, and I think this is probably true of a lot of the other infrastructure disciplines, there's, I would argue, a normality of, you know, maybe it's robustness or permanence, right? This idea that when something is there under no condition, right, should we allow it to catastrophically fail or disappear, right? Like yep. things are permanent, uh, to, your, to your example, or to your, your um, story about the DOT, right? That's, you know, it's only 60 year olds, but we, we uh, six years old, but we think about it with permanence, right? We, we, I think in many ways can't fathom a world where a DOT doesn't exist and is governing our system, right? But in many ways, we need to be able to imagine that, right? More so, not just imagine that, we need to be able to deploy tools and capabilities towards transitioning towards what the next DOT is going to be that is going to govern whatever the next version is of you know, fuzzy infrastructure or translation infrastructure, or whatever it is going forward. And I think that's a remarkably complicated um, uh, way of thinking, not, not just thinking about it, but uh, of teaching, right? Of, of sort of training, like, what does that, what does that look like, right? What, how do we teach people to be able to operate in a model like that? And, you know, I think we, we don't do that, right? We, we, you know, in many ways are not even trying to do that. Exactly. No, and we're, we're really not. You know, I, I, one of the things I'd like to get into more in the future is um, not engineering, it's moral philosophy. I really want to get into philosophy because of, of why do we make decisions? And because morally, especially engineers, whenever we design something, whenever we have a study, whenever, you know, we always make decisions. And our words, our infrastructure, our engineering systems impact people. And what we focus on usually is the technical aspect to make sure that that infrastructure system works and not so much on its impact on people after. Um, and I, and, and this, is a, this is a very, very big problem. And but when you start thinking about, so in moral philosophy offers you the structure to be able to ask those questions. What's gonna be the impact of this on, on human beings? The example I like to give is um, IRB, Institutional Review Board, I think was created in 19, 50s, 60s, or 70s in response to horrible practices from uh, the medical field about injecting diseases to people uh, without them knowing or anything. And so out of that came a, a, new, um, a new branch almost of, of more philosophy called the four principles. And I forget exactly what the four principles are, but whatever you, whenever you do something now, it has to, people has, have to be aware, they have to be okay with it. They have to, there's, there's four of them. I, I wish I had them with me. And I keep thinking about if the people, the computer scientists who program Facebook and Twitter and all these things, if they had those four principles in mind, would they have programmed it in the same way? And the answer is, is no, because now we know that all those uh, software, all those algorithms are really harming a lot of people. And so there's, there's a very big component of more philosophy that's happened in the medical field for a long time, in the biological field, is there as well, at least since the 1990s with, with stem cells, it's not in engineering yet. And we really need it. And I think once you have that in mind, then you'll have you know, people more in mind. And so you'll tweak your infrastructure or you're gonna build something or you're not gonna build something on, you know, on purpose because it has some moral implications. That we're now, we're completely oblivious to, and we even don't wanna think about it. We like to think of ourselves as 
spectators. I'm not what I'm, I'm just designing something because someone else made the decision. So I'm not responsible for it. That person who, oh, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Okay, sorry, you weren't moving. So I, I, was, I thought it was frozen. So, you know, we're, we're getting, we're getting a municipality has a contract. We're just going to do whatever they ask us to. Or if a company is asking us to do something, we're just going to do exactly what they're asking us to do. So there's no technical limitations anymore. I like to say it's not about could we build it. Yes, we could build pretty much anything now. We can build a, a, a skyscraper that's a kilometer high. So we can pretty much do whatever we want. We can have a colony on the moon. We can do all that now. It's feasible. Technologically, it's, it is feasible. But should we do it? And that's an answer that moral philosophy, no, that's something that where moral philosophy would really benefit all of us. So that's one of my things right now. What I'm trying to do is really trying to learn about moral philosophy. Um, and yeah, because I think that's something that we're severely missing in, in engineering. Uh, I know we do talk about uh, engineering ethics. It's it's really not enough the way engineering, you know, what engineering ethics entails right now is really, really not enough. And that's something that's changed, oh, that's going to change. And hopefully, again, that will not only change whether we build something or not, but even how we build it. So that we do it in a way that's much more sustainable and much more resilient because the objective is different. It's not going to have, you know, it's not going to be just to have an optimized system. It's going to have to be in a system that works for people for for how you know they want it to work knowing you have a young daughter have you read the kids book uh, the womp world by bill pete are you familiar with it no. i have not no I, I should have sent that to you but uh it's it's a book about overconsumption um and, and sort of running a planet to its limits and uh um sort of imposing kind of the a will of you know one species on another that sort of thing but it's a it's a kid's book and um you know i read it to my kids and uh they it's it's interesting to see you know some of these issues that you're talking about click um you know kind of uh try, then trying to make sense of it and kind of asking those sorts of questions so i would recommend it to you and by and by the way you know the human mind is is really weird because i thought about especially the people who are very extremely into environmentalism no, the very, very big activists. When you think about that, they're, they're, it's like they're willing to kill people for the environment. And then when you think about the, the environment is not a, it's not a person, right? It's a concept. Somehow the human mind, when you think about the environment, you think maybe about people in the future who are not going to have what we have. Um, but it's just incredible how we can get behind ideas that are really, you know, not, not very well defined. And somehow we're behind them and we're ready to, to kill and to demonstrate and for for things again that are not palpable all right how incredible i mean human beings are <laughs> we're just really incredible i just thought about this you know the other day it's just, it just doesn't exist right it's not there it's not even like human rights it's not there it's something that's you know it's i don't know and we're still oh, it's, a, it's a social construct yeah yeah i mean it's, it's amazing um uh how good we are at at treating you know humans technologies, environment as compartmentalized things, right? Like the environment is this thing and it's separate from, you know, infrastructure, which is this other thing, which is separate from people, which is this other thing. And of course they all interact and we try to study that, right? But, you know, you could say, well, again, you know, this fuzziness concept, right? Like the, these systems are all kind of interrelated, right? They're all sort of ebbing and flowing um, with each other, right? Um, some are social constructs or human constructs, technological constructs of the other that are passing with the time, right? Changing uh, as we speak, even though we can't see that. 
and and yeah and, and and everyone has to live within this together um right it's not about and i don't know it's 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 incredible how animalistic some behaviors like of anger of hatred for, for something that is is very not very well defined it's incredible how we can have that as human beings so, Sybil, uh, thank you. I see a number of questions that are popping up. So let me give the audience an opportunity to ask you some. So uh, first off, uh, I think this relates to our conversation about artificial intelligence and you know, data and so on, smart cities. Do you think quantum computing would impact uh, our way uh, to model infrastructure? I don't know much about quantum computing, uh, so I'm not too sure. If I if I remember correctly, it's 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 a way where it's not about zero and one, right? It's a, we can do some extremely complex calculations uh, with very really way not uh, consuming too much energy. I think it's something like this, um, and 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 the answer is, you know, I'm I'm very ambivalent at those extremely large models of infrastructure. Um, you know, I've seen one, some that are region wide, really, you know, almost all of the United States have with power and, and gas and trying to model the interdependencies. I really don't know what to think about those. Cause on the one hand, I, I like them a lot because they do give us some kind of picture that we have. On the other hand, running scenarios, there's no way you can think about absolutely every single scenario that could, that could happen. So would quantum computing enable us to have models of entire cities that run very well? Um, I, I don't know if it's an energy problem or more even of a way that we think problem, humans problem. Right now, I like this idea of the digital twins a lot because it's about modeling cities having digital twins. I like the idea a lot to get us to start thinking about how we can have, especially models talk with one another. So you have the stormwater management model and the traffic model and the building uh, energy consumption model. Right now, these are all huge um, models that really don't talk to one another. So I like to have the idea of really rethinking about modeling. Do I think we can actually achieve it? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think so. So it's, it's again, that's you know, something where the process is more important, I think, than than the ultimate goal that we have. Um, so yeah. So I mean, do, do we want to really model all of the infrastructure systems together? I don't know that we can. I know that we want. Um, maybe it's kind of like that Eisenhower quote, which is, I don't believe I don't, plans are useless, but I believe in planning. I can, you know, so it's, I think it's something like this, right? We really should go through the exercise, but we should not have a goal. You know, we should not really want to necessarily reach that goal. It's okay if we don't. Yeah. I mean, I'll offer this, you know, I was at a national academies workshop a few years ago and, uh, one of the days, so it was like each day they talked about like an up and coming field that, you know, was, was right at the beginning and quantum computing was one, you know, you know, it's probably been around for whatever decades at this point, but you know, there's like this critical mass of researchers that came from prestigious places to talk to this broad set of, you know, um, you know, science and engineering types. And it was quite clear to me from the conversation that they, uh, the quantum computing field um, is in its nascent uh, stages and is trying to wrap their heads around what questions quantum computing can inform. And I think that was the point of this workshop, but I came out of it saying to myself, okay, you know, 
there, there might be something here uh, for me to sort of inject some of my ideas around infrastructure and in cities into where, you know, we can let loose quantum computing in the not too distant future. So, uh, you know, I think that that might be one way to think about that. There's uh, another question we have here, and I uh, encourage the audience if there's any more questions to add them to the Q and A. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of paraphrase, uh, but um, how would you, Sybil, what comes to mind? What do you think about when, you know, we've talked a lot about modernizing education uh, or transforming education around, you know, sort of the sustainability and resilience concepts that we're talking about here, but, you know, wh where do we start? Like what, you know, what would you, you know, say we need to start doing to um, begin changing education towards, you know, some of the challenges that we've been discussing? That's a great question. That's a really great, great, great question. You know, I'm in civil engineering. I know very little or next to nothing about structural engineering. Um, you know, I'm even wondering, should we really have a department of civil engineering with all those different disciplines or should we have just a many engineering, you know, one large, larger engineering department and you just can venture and learn and then you can do some structural if you want to or some transportation with computer science if, we, if you want to. Um, I'd love to have it more um, interest-driven rather than having a fixed curriculum uh, so that students you know, can just venture into kind of what they want to. It doesn't mean that you can take the senior year if you haven't you know, taken the basic math, but at least it's more interest-driven. Um, that, that would be amazing. And forcing also that moral philosophy component there. Um, I know in many universities right now, the funding, the budget system really, really incentivizes departments to just stay together so they maximize their enrollment so that they get more revenue. I'm hoping that that's gonna go away. Really, really hoping that that's gonna go away. Um, and, um, and I also know the power of ABET. Uh, so the American Board of Education and Technology, something like this. So if you wanna become a professional engineer, you need to uh, have your uh, FE, well, you need to have your PE license. For PE license, you have to have FE to get your FE. You need to take the exam. To take the exam, you need to have the necessary education. And for that, you, your department needs to be ABET accredited. And I, I don't know how much good it's doing, uh, that ABET accreditation. I know MIT, I'm told for the longest time, was not ABET accredited in their civil engineering because they didn't really care about what ABET wanted. They did their own thing. I don't think that's bad necessarily. I do think there's a space for, for ABET um, because I do think we do want some students exposed to many different fields. Um, but I, again, the rigidity now is, is really a problem for me. Uh, you know, I, my undergrad is in mechanical engineering, by the way, not in civil engineering. I graduated from high school. I had no idea what engineering was. Civil engineering sounded like it was going to be overlooking construction projects. I didn't really want to do that. So, and somehow the car and I'm an incline, you know, uh, and in physics that's called mechanics. So I thought, well, mechanical engineering sounds fun. So I started mechanical engineering, did not like it too much. Um, in my final year, I went into industrial engineering because I did actually a year abroad and I was in France and it was about business. I really thought I wanted to go into business. I didn't like it that much either. <laughs> My favorite thing was that research project that I did in my uh, between uh, junior and senior year where I actually did some research that I really, really enjoyed. And I really thought transportation was, was really cool too. So that, that's my interest, you know? And so I just wish that as I got a little bit more into the program, instead of taking those classes that I had to take about 
power plants or about polymers that I could have taken other classes. So interest-driven versus you know, curriculum-driven. I'm, I'm hoping we can go there. In terms of in the classroom, um, I, I listened to a, the podcast by, oh, what's his name? It's a TED Talk. It's a British guy who was really always, I mean, was really complaining about the current education system. Um, and he has a, I forget his name, but he has, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a very funny TED Talk. It's, I think he's one of the most viewed. Uh, and then he had a one-hour podcast with the TED person. And he's talking about education and how there's four components to it. It's uh, the curriculum, the environment, the pedagogy, and, oh, I forget what it is. I forget what it is. There's the fourth one. I'll find it because I have it here. It's, it's so great that I, I just really, really want to remember it. Uh, um, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? It's pedagogy. Um, so curriculum, pedagogy, assessment, and social environment. There you go. Is these four. And usually whenever you have nationwide or statewide uh, mandates, you're going to focus on curriculum because you want to make sure that everyone is exposed to the same curriculum. You might uh, look at assessment so to make sure that everyone is assessed the same way. Social environment, it's there. It depends on the school. It's different. But no one really cares about pedagogy. And pedagogy is how you deliver that curriculum, right? And so I'm really hoping that that's going to change as well. I mean, I'm trying my best in my classes to deliver my uh, knowledge in the way that students are going to enjoy it. Um, but I, I don't think I'm doing enough. I don't think we're doing enough in, in, in engineering or in, at the university in general. And I don't especially don't think we're doing enough in high school and middle school and in elementary school to, to really focus more on the pedagogy rather than the curriculum. So the curriculum could be this moving thing, depending on what the students want to do, uh, or at least to be more flexible. But the pedagogy really has to be nailed on to make sure that um, children and then students really are in a are, are within the right environment to learn what they want to learn, considering what they like, considering if they can focus or they can't focus as much. I'm really hoping again, pedagogy is, is where we have to emphasize. Awesome, thank you. So uh, I think we have time for. Uh, one, maybe two questions. I see one more pop in. So um, we have about 10 minutes. So let's see if we can uh, get both of these in. So first is Professor Yoan Kim at uh, Carleton. Uh, thanks for the great conversation. First of all, I love that you introduced yourself as an urban engineer, as a person who got trained both in engineering and in interdisciplinary program. I started to introduce myself as an urban systems engineer, and I'm glad to have a colleague in common. Uh, with the increasing popularity of nature-based solutions in cities, which are less predictable with data and models and smart infrastructure, do you think they'd add good complexity in cities or just add chaos? All right. So this is a wonderful question. And I, I love the complexity. I'll tell you, I love the stormwater management field because they've done the opposite in the past 15 years, I don't think we realize how big of a deal it is. They've done the opposite of everything that humankind has been doing. From the beginning of cities, from the very, very early cities, when it rained, we built ditches to get rid of the stormwater. Very, very early on, what we wanted to do is getting rid of that stormwater. And then that infrastructure has gotten more and more complicated, more complex, just to get rid of that stormwater. Somehow in the past 15 years with green infrastructure, that's a um, so more nature-based solution. Um, what we're doing is instead of getting rid of this uh, stormwater, we're keeping it there. So we're trying to be little pockets everywhere in the city where we're keeping the stormwater in 
stormwater there and any excess of it then goes in the sewer system. And again, it's a fundamental shift, right? It's not about getting rid of the water, it's about keeping it there. And I love this idea. And then you want to think about it in terms of transportation, for transportation, what engineers have tried to do for the longest time is to give you access freedom to wherever you want, but basically you're trying to get rid of the cars as soon as possible, as fast as possible on the highways. So you try to build a system to get rid of the car, right? And it's, this, it's very, very similar. Whereas that's not what we want. We don't want to get rid of the cars. We don't want, and I don't think we want to make someone available to go 30 miles out very as quickly as possible. What we want is to ask, why do you want to go 30 miles out? What's there and how can we provide it closer to where you are so that you stay closer to where you are and you don't need all, much, all that much transportation infrastructure? So I think there's two parts of the question. The first one is nature-based solutions in general, which I generally really, really enjoy. Uh, the, more, the more natural it is, right? The more we use the natural environment, the better, I think. But then there's even that conceptual aspect that comes from green infrastructure that I think is, is absolutely amazing. And I'd, I'd really want to use, again, the same mentality, the same concept, but apply to other fields. So we're really trying to get rid of something and how do we keep it there? And again, stormwater management, I, I really think we're underplaying how big of a deal this is, how we've completely changed the way that we think about everything. Solid management is somewhere, I think, where we're going there as well. Solid management is pretty cool. What we're doing now is we're generating some trash and then please take it away from me as soon as possible, right? That's what we're we're trying to do and that is going to change at some point um at some point you know the I mean, compost is part of that it's it's, it's it's part of the answer to that we're keeping some of the trash sometimes in our backyards uh to make compost reuse it but what about other things that are not compostable um maybe at some point we'll keep it more locally so i, I just you know it's just it just presents a lot of opportunities i think excellent uh one more question so professor matt Ackerman at northeastern um, given how long we've been designing cities, why do you think that we're so bad at it with so many unsafe intersections, so many obviously bad consequences for neighborhoods? Basically, why haven't we learned better how to design effectively? How can we design smart cities when we are still making so many basic mistakes? I think we're pretty good at designing cities, actually. <laughs> I think we were so good at it that they became so big that now we're facing new problems. Right, uh, it's it's even when you think about uh, that diminishing marital returns concept, we're just gonna exploit a, a a solution all the way until it runs its course, and then we're gonna have to define a new one. So there's no way now we have cities of 20, 30 million people. There's no way that was possible 200 years ago. Absolutely no way. So I think we got really really good at designing cities. Uh, except that when we did that, we also created a lot of problems and we're going to have to solve those uh, as well. Um, so I don't think we're bad at it. I think we just need to have a new toolkit that we, need to, that we need to define. And by the way, that's another point as well is somehow we have this idea that when we solve a problem, everything is going to be, everyone's going to be happy forever and we're going to be all thrilled. And that's never the case, right? Whenever we solve problems we're creating new ones or we get bigger so new problems arise and i want to say oh yes i have my daughter now and i want to design a good you know world so that she's happy she's going to have her challenges <laughs> society is not going to be problem free when by the time that she's an adult um and you know or even her children or children's children and there are always going to be problems so you know it's not i don't think we should necessarily blame ourselves by how bad we were 
I think we're we're pretty good at it. We just have to change. Um, we just have to, yeah, that from and from the beginning, right? We said that creativity, stop thinking that whatever we have now is 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 permanent. Think of it in terms of you know impermanent and let's come up with new solutions. Knowing yeah. that we'll create new problems, but that's the way it is. I think that's a great point to end on. Thanks so much, Sybil. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Yeah, and uh, thank you to all the attendees for joining. We will continue to do this. Um, and if you have suggestions on who to interview, let me know. Send me an email. Thanks all. Thank you, everyone. The Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.